Hello, and welcome to the Brain Mastery Podcast, brought to you by ABI Wellness. This series features renowned experts on brain injury, brain health, and rehabilitation. Be sure to visit abiwellness.com for more resources. All right, welcome back to the Brain Mastery Podcast. Very excited for today's episode. We're going to be talking with Dr. Jim Jackson from Vanderbilt Hospital System and Medical Center. Jim is just released, like it's hot off the press as a brand new book called Clearing the Fog from Surviving to Thriving with Long COVID. James comes to us as, you know, he's a neuropsychologist. He's been in the field a very long time. He can speak to it more than I, but he almost felt called to write this book based on what he was finding and the trends that he was seeing, not just through sort of looking at some of the clinical research, but also understanding the lived experience of those patients for which he served and others served and trying to help to provide maybe sort of like a roadmap for the patient to help them to navigate through this very complex medical condition. So thank you so much for joining us today. It is good to be here. It's great to be here with you, Mark. And I have been in the field for a really long time. I I turned 55 just last month. And what I've noticed recently is I have a lot of really young colleagues that I work with, in some cases that I mentor, And I use these examples, TV shows from the 1980s that I watched where I try to make a point, hey, this happened on Happy Days. And they're like, what's Happy Days? And then I reference a song from Journey and they say, who's Journey? And and I'm feeling old, but, but that really hasn't diminished my passion at all for what I think is a really important topic. And, and that is that there are literally millions of people with long COVID, long haulers, you know, is what they're referred to as. And they really don't have much of a roadmap. And many of them don't have a voice. And the thing that I'm really struck by every day, almost every day, I get emails from somebody, sometimes more than one from somebody, often a pretty sophisticated medical consumer, a really thoughtful person who knows their way around the block, and they have never heard of cognitive rehab. They've never heard of mental health treatments for PTSD. They they have no idea that there are pathways through which they could be helped. And if they can't figure it out, the people who are not dialed in, I think, have no chance at figuring this out. And so that dynamic that we see all the time is really one of the things that motivated and animated me. I felt like somebody has to inject some hope into the lives of these patients and introduce them to the idea that brain injuries can get better, that mental health problems can get better, and that when we treat them, they do get better. I love that. You know, as we continue to live with this this COVID condition out there, obviously in the early stages when we were, we were looking at this condition, this long-haul condition, for the listener, why don't you help them to understand, before they go get the book, but help them to understand What is it about this condition from a brain-based perspective? Because we think about COVID as this pulmonary issue, but, you know, tell us more, what what were we seeing in long COVID that related to the brain and to cognition? It's really interesting. I would say that people talk about long COVID, I do often, as if it's a thing. And in truth, it's many different things. It's a lot of different things. And, And when you look at people who have long COVID, they're also quite different. So you have some people who were never in the hospital at all. You have some people who were quite sick in the hospital, but never in the ICU. And then you have people who are the most severe. They were in the ICU on a ventilator 
they were delirious, they had organ failure, sepsis, whatever. So if you take that third group first, the people who were in the ICU for 50 days, 100, 200 days, in some cases on ECMO, the brain injury piece is easy to understand for them. You know, they have obvious hypoxic injuries, they're on a ventilator, didn't get enough oxygen. So it's easy to understand how they can get to this brain injured place. Somewhat easy to understand how the hospitalized people can get there. I think it's a little more mysterious to folks or has been, that is, how does one become brain injured when they were never very sick with COVID? You know, they have this virus, never very sick. And I think we're learning a lot about the processes. We're learning that even in those folks, there's a lot of neuroinflammation. There's enough neuroinflammation that there have been some studies done, one in England in particular that used quite an elegant design I think the the study used something called the British Brain Bank. And basically what they did was they they had imaging data, neuroimaging data on thousands of patients before COVID. They looked at the patients in their sample who had had COVID Mm. and then they imaged them again. So they had pre-post measures of people who predominantly were not very sick. And no one predicted that there would be brain changes in these patients. And I think somewhat shockingly, there were. There were really significant brain changes. There was a lot of atrophy in the brains of these patients. And so I think that was useful because self-report is a little bit of a soft outcome. That's how doctors consider it, I think. And even neuropsychological testing is not as objective as we might like, but neuroimaging data, that's a pretty hard outcome. So when you see someone before they got COVID, they're 35 and healthy and their brain is fine, and then their brain volume has decreased drastically over a span of a year or two, something is at work. And that's really what worries us. I think that's what keeps people up at night. A hundred percent. That's what worries me. You know, I, I love the quote in the book, the Edison quote. For our listeners, this is a beautiful, beautiful quote. I'm putting you on the spot. So no, I can... no, it's fine. I, I yeah. may not remember exactly the quote, but Edison basically said that the primary purpose of the body is to carry around and protect the brain. And I I think people tell us basically, if I've got my brain and I don't have my body, I can be okay with that if I've got my brain. But if my body's intact and I don't have my brain, I don't have very much. That's what patients say. Love it. That's such a great quote. And I'm going to steal it all day long. It is the best quote. I love it because it makes so much sense. And so so much of us out there, and I think it's with good intent, Focus on the body, on the rehabilitation of the body, on the orthopedic, you know, surgeries for the body to improve ultimately quality of life. But I love, this is why I really appreciate your approach. I'm going to ask, check out this book. I consumed it fast last night in preparation for this interview. And it's compelling. This man has, you know, been in this work a long time. He's a good person. He's very approachable. But what really stands out for me about this book is many of us, most of us have had a COVID infection. So I think it's important that we do the work to better understand what may have occurred here. And if us or a loved one or a friend is struggling with some things, here's a practical roadmap to take a look at and consider when dealing with some of these persisting symptoms. Absolutely. You mentioned the Edison quote. There was another quote that I initially included in the book, and then I took it out. And that was a Mike Tyson quote. And it goes, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. And I quite like that quote. I was sad that my editor wanted me to remove it. 
but I think it really resonates here. And that is the idea that people are planning, they're going about their lives quite nicely, and then they get punched in the face. And in the case of people who were critically ill in the ICU, they knew they were getting punched in the face. So when they emerged from from the recesses of the hospital and their lives were upended, they at least were not surprised at it. But our friends and neighbors, coworkers who were sick for a day or a week, who were not sick at all, they didn't really understand that they got punched in the face until they got back to work. And now they're making accounting errors. Now they're on the verge of getting fired. Now they've been demoted. So that's a quote that resonates with me because there are a lot of people who've been punched in the face and they need a plan. They badly need a plan. So true. And yeah, I love that. You should have kept it in there. Come on, editor. That's a great quote. Because it's so true. It's so true for all of us. Maybe in the second edition, we can keep that quote. We'll see. We'll see. So when we think about this book, Who's it for? Okay, so I, I I read it, but I didn't write it. When you were compelled to write this book or called to write this book, as you were thinking about this, who were you thinking of that needed it most and why? It really was a calling and, and, and it felt like I was being compelled. It was very personal. And when you hear the stories of long COVID patients, as we do in our support groups, you know, close to 100 patients a week, you can't not be moved by their plight. So it was really written for them, to help them and their families, to to honor them, but practically to help them and their families. And also, I think, to introduce their healthcare providers who primarily are non-specialists. You know, they wind up seeing a neurologist perhaps, but typically they don't. Usually they see their GP or their internist. So it's for patients and their families, but also for these really thoughtful, well-meaning physicians who I think through no fault of their own haven't come to appreciate that Cognition is vitally important, you know, that a brain injury can be treated, that cognitive rehabilitation is an actual field, that people can be helped for patients and their families, but also for providers who hopefully can provide a little more direction guided by this book. Love it. That's amazing. That's amazing. And that that scales. That's what I like about what you said there, is that could be a plan that actually scales because this is a very new problem. But also I what I like about what you done very well in the book, and I won't give too much away, is looking at some other conditions, we figured some things out over the years. So how do we take those lessons that we've learned and then apply them into treating this population? There's been a lot about long COVID. The whole thing's been sad. It's been so sad. But there's a lot about it that has been really maddening and crazy making. There have been some narratives that have emerged or developed, I think. And, and one of those is that we know nothing about treating long COVID. And while I'll acknowledge that there are some aspects to long COVID that are really challenging to treat, fatigue would be a good example. The idea that we should just throw out everything we know about the care of patients and clinical medicine, et cetera, because that suddenly has no relevance. I think it's really silly. And yet that's the narrative that I think emerged. And it was important to me And I think it's important to others to say, back to car up, hold on. There actually are things that we know that that we knew before COVID that we still know that help people with PTSD, that can be used to help people with depression, that can be used to rehabilitate executive dysfunction, attentional deficits, processing speed. So a lot of it was reaching back into our collective back pocket, so to speak, and articulating to people 
hold on, this isn't our first rodeo. COVID is new, but we know a lot about treating medically compromised patients with cognitive and mental health challenges, and we shouldn't discard that. 100%. I was just having a conversation earlier today. Like, I think that one of the things that is extremely hopeful here is that some interventions that may be needed at times may involve pharmaceutical support. But what you're kind of positioning and arguing here is really a lot of it behavioral in nature, which is kind of empowering for the individual, right? Who, you know, when we're in the ICU, I mean, we're, we're barely hanging on with support. And then as we get discharged out, the amount of supports lowers, but also what you're suggesting, I believe, if we can provide the level of support needed into the outpatient community or even in the inpatient as function goes up, we still want to try to find a way to find, pair up the appropriate treatment in a way that enables the individual to challenge themselves to improve. I'm a big fan of the show Naked and Afraid. I don't know if you ever watched that, but no. a survival show is a very popular show, kind of crazy show. But basically, you take two people and you put them, some of your listeners have, have watched it, I'm sure, you put them on an island, you put them in the middle of the jungle, whatever, and they have to survive. And there's this, there's this famous episode on Naked and Afraid, which also didn't make its way into the book. Initially, it did. And in the book, there's a man and a woman, they're, they're on this little desert island, and they have to stay there for 21 days. And the strategy that the man has is he decides he's just going to lay under a palm tree and cover up with some palm leaves and just, just wait it out. He's just going to lay there and wait it out while the other person, his partner, is out trying to catch fish. She's hunting. He's just laying under the tree until help arrives. And what we want to say to our long COVID survivors is do not use that approach, right? Like I want a therapeutic, you want a therapeutic, but let's realize that even as we're derailed, even if you're brain injured, whatever is going on, there are ways that you can be empowered. There are ways that you can dig down deep and find that grit. And that's not toxic positivity. That's not too much rainbows and, and sunshines and ponies, whatever. It's true. You can reach down and find that gear that you didn't think you had with some guidance. And that's really what the book does. It tries to provide that guidance and reminds people, yes, this is hard. And I'm going to respect you enough to say you can do really hard things. You can do hard things and you can find meaning in the process. Beautiful. That is so well said. And, and I think it's oftentimes underrepresented. When we look at anybody that's achieved anything great, whether it's at a I, I know in your in your mind you have those patients that you've had that somehow they buckled up and, and somehow did it. And you look at the successful people in life, a lot of the times they found that extra gear, as you said, so well. So what this is saying is is take some guidance before you go out seeking for the solution because it is complicated. There's a lot of information out there. There's a lot of misinformation out there. Yes. So it's very important to go in eyes wide open. Yeah, exactly. And I think there's the famous quote, takes a village. And, and this does take a village. When our, when our patients do better, when they're able to dig deep and find that resilience that resides somewhere in them, ideally, they're doing it in the context of a community, a community of people that believe in them and support them. Locally here at Vanderbilt, that community is the support groups that we've developed. We have four or five a week. We have close to 100 patients that come through and they really care about each other and and they're 
They're honest about their successes. They're equally honest about their failures because both of these are very relevant, but they're caring for each other. And I think the people who do better, it's kind of a simple equation. They have more support. The people who do worse, they have less support. So finding your people here, whoever they might be, that's one of the key challenges and opportunities, I think. Amazing. Yeah, so well said. And it it does take a village, but what it also takes, and this is where, you know, I'm going to try to make you blush. It's takes an action bias to do something about it. You could have just sat down and just analyzed the data. Like, I want to ask you, like, you're, you're sitting there, you're quite active on Twitter and you're, you know, that's really how we came to know each other. Right. And you're, you know, you you could be just noticing interesting data points that may require further investigation at the end of the paper that are limiting due to lack of controls that may not have pre-injury baseline, which is problematic to reach any conclusion. What is it in you? What is it in you? You didn't have to do this. Yeah, well, you know, I talk in the book a lot about my own mental health journey and that journey, a complicated story, but, but basically in 2018, during a really hard season in my life, stressful season, I developed OCD quite out of the blue, right out of the blue. And I went to see a psychologist and I said, what on earth is going on? And she said, pretty shortly, she said, you've got OCD. And I said, okay, let's get rid of it. That sounds fine. Let's get rid of it. And she said, you know, I don't know that it's quite that simple. I don't think you just get rid of it. And I was like, really? Like I do, I'm going to get rid of it. She said, I'm not so sure. So for the first year or so, I really fought against it. I just fought it tooth and nail. We made exactly no progress. And then about a year later, it dawned on me, yeah, you really do have OCD and it's not going away. It's getting better, but it's not going away. So how can you get off the mat here and start living, not wait for it to go away, but how can you start living? And and suddenly, it wasn't sudden, over time, I began realizing, gosh, I can coexist with this. Like I, I can live with, I can live a rich life with this. I could write a book with this. And that experience of overcoming really made me feel obligated in some ways, I would say, to say to these long COVID friends and patients, mm-hmm. I've got a mental illness. It's a chronic illness. It's pretty tough. And, and I can do this. And that makes me think you can do this too. And I'm not sugarcoating OCD. My OCD has been really hard. There have been some days that have been really tough, but I've learned I can do it. And that's the message that I felt a real obligation to share with these patients that we're going to get you the right support. We're going to help get you what you need. And you can do this too. And I think that's countermark to a really unhelpful framing that we see in our modern culture today, which is you know what, if you can get a therapeutic, everything's going to be fine, right? If you can get a pill, everything's going to be fine. But if you don't get a pill, nothing is going to be fine. And I feel like we've got to counter every chance we get that way of seeing things, because I think that's incredibly unhelpful. And I've seen it in the COVID context. I'm wanting a therapeutic just like you are. I mean, we're desperate for it. They need more clinical trials, more funding. But but we need to not tell people, you're not going to be okay unless you get a therapeutic, because it's a lie for one thing. I totally agree. And I mean, you look at the advent of medical innovation of things like, you know, chemotherapy and, and, and you look at that and you say some one side of the the audience would be what a terrible thing. It's toxic. Right. You can't put toxics in your body. And the other side might say, well, if you don't, then you die. But you look at where that sort of treatment 
is that now with the continued innovation, we're we're looking at you know vaccines for right. like, like it's pretty remarkable. But it took the continual leadership and questioning and the action bias to move the needle. And the right. same can happen for behavior. And that's so exciting. It's so yeah. exciting. And I just commend you again for the leadership. It's not, I know it's not just you, you got a good team there yeah. too, but yeah. it's pretty awesome to see that action come about because people obviously they need it. It's so lovely when you, uh, you know, the, the key I think is, you know, when patients understand that you care for them deeply, they're willing to consider possibilities that are hard, right? Like, Hey, maybe I could live with this. You know, when when I say to a patient, I think you can do hard things. I, I think there's a way to live a rich life, even if this doesn't go away. I think that credibility is born out of, hey, I really love you. I really care about you. And patients listen and they consider. I think all too often what happens is physicians are really dismissive. They say, well, I know what a brain injury is. A brain injury is getting hit over the head with a bottle. A brain injury is falling out of a tree stand. They dismiss patients and say, this can't be a brain injury. You know, you look pretty fine. So this can't be cognitive impairment. And you know, and I know that there are a lot of people, even with mild deficits, mild cognitive deficits, depending on occupation, depending on career. I mean, your life can be profoundly derailed by mild deficits. And if I had a dollar or every time I've heard a patient say that a physician said, eh, it's no big deal, no big deal. I'd be a wealthy man. So I'm I'm inviting healthcare professionals, if they're listening here, to not say that. You know, don't say it's no big deal. It's a big deal. It's a big deal because it, it is to that individual. And and yeah. don't dismiss that. And I and I get there's a lot of pressure for the medical professionals out there. We want to yes. not give false hope. And right. I respect that. I, I completely respect that. But also stay curious. None of us know it all. But what, what I like about what you're doing and what you've done, I think it can really help. I'm sure it's helped with your connection with patients to be able to open up and say, hey, look, I'm not perfect. I got my own stuff. Yeah, it's really interesting. When I started training in psychology 30 years ago or, or more, you know, there was a big focus on boundaries. Of course, there are important boundaries to maintain with patients, but there was such a focus on boundaries that I remember I had clinical supervisors who said, you know, don't put a picture of your family on your desk because we don't want your patient to know that you have a family. We don't want them to know that much about you. You're not supposed to reveal that much. And that seemed weird to me that 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 sort of wall between a provider and a patient seemed like too much. And I would say for me, at least, the more I can humanize an encounter with a patient by taking off my mask, so to speak, and showing my own scars and sharing my own stuff as appropriate, the more powerful that encounter becomes. And I wish we were all a little bit more inclined that way. I do think one silver lining, if there is a silver lining in the pandemic, has been that at a minimum, people are more open to talking about mental health issues than they were. And I think that's really good progress. I'm happy about that. I think it's amazing. And I, th I totally agree with you. And I think when I have really interesting minds like yours and bright minds like yours on this, I, I like to ask questions and learn. And so one question I have for you is, could you explain the difference between mental health and brain health? Uh, you know, that's a really interesting question, right? Because so much of mental health originates in the brain, right? So I guess there's an ultimate sense 
in which mental health is the brain. I, I mean, I think depending on your religious or theological point of view, there's a there's a soul that is distinct from the brain. But I think there's a great deal of overlap. That's the point between brain health and mental health. And I think as goes one, there goes the other. And I think this is really important, right? Because one way in my experience to impact mental health is to impact brain health. And one way to impact brain health, to be sure, is to improve PTSD, to improve anxiety, to improve depression, because often the cognitive errors and the cognitive slip-ups that people make are not, strictly speaking, only due to attention deficits, problems in working memory, but often they're driven by the effects of anxiety and depression. So to me, when we send someone to cognitive rehab, sometimes the best intervention is we're going to fix the mental health. And when we do that, the cognitive health improves in line with the mental health. Yeah, it makes sense. That makes sense. That's that's something I I think about frequently. And, you know, I'm I'm curious, though, additionally, when we think about mental health, what's something that's really hopeful is there's a lot of conversation about mental health and education around mental health and education around different kinds of mental health challenges and different sorts of programs and, and supports to treat mental health. Do you mind talking a little bit to the need for programs that fit, though, underneath the education? It's so important. I mean, there are there are not as many programs as we would like, either in the cognitive domain or the mental health domain. In the In the cognitive domain, I was on NPR recently on their show Fresh Air, and and it was great interview. And I talked about a program in the in the cognitive arena called goal management training, which is a fairly standard and quite robust approach to rehabilitating executive functioning. And I got all these emails from people who said, "I've never heard of this program before. I have no idea what this is. What is it?" Equally. When I talk about things like acceptance and commitment therapy, which has been powerful in my own life and powerful in the lives of my patients, many people have never heard of it. So I think we do have a little bit of a marketing problem or a publicity problem, if you want to call it that, in the cognitive and mental health arena. And I do think we need to find a way to improve that. And I'm not sure how we do that exactly. I'm not sure how we let, you know, John and Jane Hugh public you know, John and Jane Doe know that there are programs available because right now there's quite a disconnect, I think. Yeah, I agree. But I think it's coming. And you know me, I'm never the optimist, but it's coming. Um, I think that one of the things that I've noticed that's somewhat challenging, keeping in mind I'm somewhat biased, but is that when we're presented with an orthopedic issue, let's say it's right knee patella tendon issue that needs to be treated you know, maybe I first saw, you know, a physiatrist and then a physiotherapist to develop the rehab plan. So that's quite clear. And we kind of understand that and it's, and it's accepted. But where you're at, you know, how many physiotherapy clinics are there within a 10 mile radius? Probably right. lots, right? right? So when we think about the future, this is the future I want to see, is I want to see brain health clinics. What runs the body? Like, like and 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 what we're doing, uh, we have a bit of a, maybe a bit of a an issue, a bit of a challenge. There's going to, have to be some collaboration because, well, okay. So if I have a brain health or a, or a mental health issue, 
it may require medication. So you're going to have to see a psychiatrist. Right. But if you if you simply need counseling, you know what, and you're insured, uh, you're going to see an, a registered clinical counselor. If you're dealing with, you know, something related to addiction, you might need this. If you're dealing, well, this is a concern I have is that we're competing for that time. And if we can get a little bit better at generalizing some of the baseline assessment, which we can do, and we, we already have some of those yeah. assessments, then if we could triage better and provide systems a little bit better, they could enable maybe not everyone, but most to engage in something that's that's behavioral based. That's right. obviously my bias with what we've yeah. designed with Bears. Yeah. That was the problem we're working towards solving together with a lot of great people. I think that's going to be. A yeah, way. I agree. I agree completely with that. There's a need for programs that are scalable. Certainly, I think when people dip their toe in the water with regard to treatment they find out it's fine, right? Like the water is fine. The problem is getting them to kind of the edge of the water. I, I, I think it would be lovely, and this is very aspirational, but you know, we routinely take people's blood pressure in clinics, we weigh yep. them, we measure them, et cetera. I think we really need to prioritize evaluating their cognition in the same way, because arguably that cognition is every bit as important as that blood pressure and it's every bit as important as that BMI. And yet it is, as they say, kind of the redheaded stepchild. You know, it doesn't get the attention that it needs. So I think that's one thing that is really important. The other thing I would say, just as a practical matter, I see so many patients with long COVID with a primary cognitive component. And because they walk and chew gum, right, they're thoughtful. It's not obvious. No physician asks them about their cognition at all. And it could be, and I've seen this be the case many times, it could be that if you gave that patient an MMSE, they would score 20 out of 30. You know, they'd be very impaired. And yet, if you don't ask and investigate, you won't discern that. So I think there is so much cognitive impairment unrecognized in this moment that we're in in time. And I think that's a really big problem. We need to do a lot better. Yeah. And we can't. I mean, that's we can. The thing. We, we can. can. And we're starting to. Like that's part of how we started to having discussions. You know, I I I agree. I, I think we can, and I think we're going to. You know, what what I like is for the people that are listening here again to bring it back is that if you know someone that might be struggling, or if you're just curious about what is this long COVID right. thing, or let's say you're on the other side of the fence, let's say, eh, you know, it's it's no big deal, right? It's just a cold. Okay, test that and, and read this book, and and then and then provide the feedback because what you've done here is is really done a a, a lot of robust analysis. <laughs> this isn't just for the scientists out there. You know, this is very easy to read and will help you to understand what this condition is, especially if you're concerned about it for yourself or a loved one or just generally interested in the topic. Yeah. Well, thank you, and and I think. To summarize, you know, the word hope is not on the on the title of the book. The word thriving is, but I, I hope within the book people will find a lot of hope, right? And I think honestly, that's what you and your colleagues are offering. There's a section in my book, in the book, where I talk about an old-time relative of mine. His name was Dr. Pierce. My great aunt used to tell me about him. And he was kind of a late 19th century huckster. He had this, I'm sure it was alcohol-laced medicinal that you would take, you know, Dr. Pierce's potion, whatever it was. 
And yeah, a lot of promises. Uh, you know, I've got some documents of, of, of his where you can read all the things that this potion was supposed to do, right? It did none of them. It was snake oil. So they're bad actors to be sure. But the, the thing is, there are real answers, right, that are not snake oil for people with cognitive impairment. There are real answers. You all are offering those. Yeah. Other people are offering them. And I think when I see a patient come to me, as has happened even this week, and they haven't had any cognitive intervention and they're feeling very hopeless, my gentle invitation to them is, okay, let's hold on. Let's not go there yet. If you've gotten treatment and it's not better, that's perhaps a different thing. But until you get treatment and until we find out that it's not going to work, I'm going to be probably believing that it is going to work. That, I think, is the message that we've got to communicate, that treatment is available. It's not perfect for many people. It is the difference, though, between being on disability and functioning very well, and it's available. 150%. And that's where you know I'm excited about some of the future stuff we may do. We're going to do together, and, and more people are going to do together because we've got to work together. Exactly. That's the only way we're going to do this. Too it's, many silos. It's, yeah. it's going to be too hard. And we're competing. We've only got the same amount of time in the day. So yeah. it's going to be too hard. But if we can come together and bring each puzzle piece together, we're going to help. And we're going to be able to provide that next person with the understanding of what worthy of a challenge really means. And then down the line in the follow-up book, tell those stories, right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's important for our patients to believe, hey, you're worth it, right? You are worth the effort. And we're interested in making that effort. And we believe that with the right treatment, you can get better. And, and I appreciate so much, Mark, your contributions to helping these patients get better and to creating a climate and a milieu where we can be hopeful and where that hope is grounded, you know, not in rainbows and unicorns, but that hope is actually grounded in science. Yeah, 100%. You know, it's so true. And, you know, you and your team there, I mean, I'm just, I'm, overwhelmed with respect for the work that you do. You have to deal with very, very serious conditions for people leaving the ICU care and trying to find the right places for them to be discharged too. We need to chat after this, actually, to spur a thought. I have a contact for you that might help on that side of it. So we'll, I'll make sure I, before we hang up on this, we'll, we'll hit that. But this book is a gift for people. It'll all be in, in the show notes, Clearing the Fog. It's available everywhere. You can download it. You can just go to your Barnes and Noble, your, wherever you get your books, go get it and read it and share it because it's hopeful. I'm telling you, I know it's not in the title, but it is. It's very hopeful, giving a bit of advice, a bit of a roadmap to help people to understand how to deal with this condition and yeah. maybe even help them to understand which questions to ask in exactly. order to better move forward. Well, thanks so much. I'm headed home to hope that I didn't burn the risk it on my smoker. We'll, we'll see if I did or, or didn't. But thank you for this great interview. And thank Always. you for your continued friendship and advocacy, Mark. No, I appreciate you. And we'll be in touch soon. Okay, thank you. Very sir. good. Go get the book. Okay. okay. Bye. Thank you so much for continuing to listen to the Brain Mastery podcast. We're super grateful for the community of supporters of this podcast. Again, this 
podcast was designed with an intention and an objective, and that was to share stories of rehabilitation, of recovery from brain injury, to really interview some of the leaders out there to provide more hope to community members. So thank you again for all of the support with that. If this episode resonated for you and had value for you, we just ask, please download and share it. Please also, if you wouldn't mind, rate the podcast. Those ratings really matter and help us to spread the message. If you're a clinical provider out there, meaning a physical therapist, an occupational therapist, or somebody who just works with people with brain injury and want to learn more about the BEARS platform, we've tried to make it as easy as possible for you to do so. Just go to www.abiwellness.com to learn more about how to get involved. Uh, training is very accessible and we've tried to make it very, very easy for people to get access to this neurorehabilitation platform. Thank you again for your support and we'll see you on the next episode. The statements made regarding the Bears platform and ABI Wellness have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. The efficacy of the Bears platform has not been confirmed by FDA-approved research. The Bears platform is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. All information presented here is not meant as a substitute for or alternative to information from healthcare practitioners. Please consult your healthcare professional about potential interactions or other possible complications before using any product. The Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act requires this notice.